in, in thinking about this, we probably should have swapped the, this co coming talk with the last one because that way it could have been the anchor leg. But uh, instead, <laughs> we're going to finish with prep. And we've had a lot of questions and discussion about this already. And we have probably the, one of the best people in the world to present this to us. Dr. Don Smith is at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She was engaged in advocating and for PrEP, uh, putting the whole program together, leading it, uh, making sure that as data came in that they were translated into policy uh, very efficiently, very effectively. And uh, she couldn't join us in person today, but she's uh, on the line for us and we're really looking forward to her talk. So uh, Dr. Smith, welcome and I look forward to hearing your presentation. And thanks for all you've done uh, to promote this in the community. Um, hi, just a second. I'm trying to um, manage uh, something online. Um, We can advance the slides for you if that would be helpful. Yeah, let's let's okay. go ahead and do that. Just say next slide and we'll go with you. Okay, next slide. <laughs> so I'm very happy to be here with you today. And um, I have no um, financial relationships to disclose. Next slide. Um, so these are the learning objectives. Um, we want to uh, help uh, listeners to identify patient populations that have the greatest need for PrEP and processes that can optimize PrEP initiation and persistence, and also to identify implementation issues for delivering the newest PrEP agent cabotegravir injections. Next slide. So we'll start with a little epidemiology. It's sort of a requirement from CDC. Um, overall in the nation, there are about 1.2 million people who have HIV, and there are an additional 1.2 million who have indications for the use of PrEP. Um, if we look at patients who have HIV, um, you can see that we have a lot of disparities to deal with in the HIV population. Uh, including higher HIV incidence in gay and bisexual men, in Black and African-American men and women, and in Hispanic and Latino persons. Um, at the same time, we have larger gaps in PrEP coverage for Black persons and for uh, Hispanic persons, and lower rates of viral suppression also for Black Americans and for American Indian and Alaska Native persons. If we look geographically, we can see that the rates of um, diagnoses of HIV infection are highest uh, in the southern states. Um, and then that's, that's sort of followed by um, coastal California and the upper eastern coast of the United States. Next slide. So if we look a little bit at the, at the disparities that we're seeing in PrEP use, um, let's look first by sex. Um, so on the left, you can see that women are 19% of the new HIV diagnosis in 2019, the last year for which we have uh, fairly complete data that wasn't affected by COVID problems. 
Um, but while they're 19% of HIV diagnoses, they're only 8% of PrEP users. Um, and if you translate that in terms of PrEP users per persons with indications for PrEP, um, which is what we use for PrEP coverage, you can see that coverage among male persons in the US was about 26% in 2020, and among females, it was only about 10% in 2020. Next slide. We can do the same kind of comparison looking at race ethnicity. And what you see on the left is that among um, new diagnoses with, uh, in 2019, white Americans were about a quarter of those diagnoses. Uh, Hispanics were slightly more than a quarter and almost half were uh, in African-Americans. But if you look at the PrEP users, two thirds of the PrEP users are white and 16% uh, are Hispanic and 14% are African-American. If you then look at the coverage rates, you see two things. Number one is that translates into 60% coverage for white persons in 2020. Uh, but only 8% for African-Americans and only 15% for Hispanics. But the other thing you notice is that the disparity is actually increasing over time between white persons and, other, and persons of other race ethnicities. Next slide. So the first thing we have to do is make sure that we optimize the identification of patients who need PrEP. And in our new guidelines, we ask providers to educate all patients about PrEP. Um, and this, we hope, will both increase community awareness of PrEP, because one of the barriers we have in the underserved communities is that they often say they've never heard of PrEP. And it also allows people to request PrEP from their providers. Um, then we ask providers to offer to all patients who have evidence of risk of HIV acquisition uh, PrEP, um, and also all persons who actually request PrEP regardless of their risk um, behaviors reported. In addition, there are a number of studies showing that you can use medical record clinical decision supports or visit intake checklists to do some of this ascertaining of risk and, and prompt providers which patients need uh, to be discussed uh, for PrEP. This includes uh, the diagnosis of gonorrhea or syphilis, both of which are predictors of future HIV acquisition and can readily be identified in electronic medical records. Um, we also think that sexual partners of persons living with HIV who have not yet achieved sustained viral suppression are ideal candidates for a discussion about PrEP. We know from several studies that providers are often missing opportunities to provide PrEP. So in New York City, where they looked at seroconverters over a five-year period and looked back to see uh, had they been seen previously, 42% had a prior negative HIV test visit, but were not provided PrEP. A similar study in South Carolina showed that 25% of the eventual seroconverters had a diagnosis of gonorrhea or syphilis at a prior healthcare visit, but were not provided PrEP. And in Alabama, a study showed that when adolescents were screened for PrEP indications, 44% had an indication, yet none of them were offered or prescribed PrEP. 
if we want PrEP to be effective, both for individual patients and at the population level, we need to do a better job of identifying and, and prescribing PrEP. Next slide. So this is the first poll. You have a 45-year-old man with HIV and an undetectable viral load for the last four years. Um, he presents to your clinic for a routine follow-up visit and reports that he has a new monogamous relationship with a male partner who has tested negative. They're worried that he might transmit HIV and he asks about PrEP for his partner. So how do you advise him? So we'll take a minute and we, I think we need to go to the next slide before we can see the poll results. So could you move to the next slide? I th it's very interesting. There's a mix of things that the providers feel comfortable um, talking about, and I think that that's appropriate for this for this question. Um, and it's encouraging to see that 37% would be willing to actually see the partner to provide prep. Next slide. So we're often asked, well, why do we need prep when we have U equals U, and we know that 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 will affect uh, transmission rates. So shouldn't we just focus on treating more patients? And, and the answer is yes, we should, but we should also be providing PrEP because in an interesting study, they looked at what percent of transmissions came from persons living with HIV um, in different clinical settings. And what you can see here is that uh, while persons who had undiagnosed HIV infection were 15% of the population, they counted for 38% of the HIV transmissions. Those who were diagnosed but not in care were 23%, but accounted for 43% of the HIV transmissions. And those who were in care but not virally suppressed were 11% and accounted for 20%. So the 50% who were in care and virally suppressed did not result in any transmissions but the 50% that were not virally suppressed for one reason or another accounted for all the transmissions. And these are the partnerships in which PrEP could be very helpful. Next slide. So once we've identified a patient and now we want to initiate PrEP, we need to, we need to do it in an expeditious manner. Um, the first thing is we're blessed in that we now have multiple choices that we can offer people. We have daily oral prep uh, for MSM. We have event-driven prep. Uh, we have injectable prep. Um, and soon we will have more things. Um, it may be important to, to implement rapid start protocols for prep, just as um, we've done for treatment. Um, but in addition to that, we need to do early check-ins to be sure that patients are actually taking the medication, have picked up the prescriptions and are taking the medications. Sometimes they don't because of co-pays or insurance issues 
that providers uh, and benefits managers can help them work on, sometimes because of concern of side effects, and sometimes because new concerns came up after their office visit. Um, and, and so if you look on the right, for example, in the VA among persons with indications for PrEP, 35% of them experienced delays receiving PrEP ranging from six weeks to 16 months. And 94% of the conversations about PrEP were initiated by the patients themselves. Um, if you're unable to provide PrEP, then it's important to either refer people to telemedicine or do a warm handoff to a community provider. And by warm handoff, I mean uh, call the person and help to introduce uh, the patient to the practice so that there is um, there is least less burden on the on the patient to actually make that follow-up appointment. Next slide. So um, we also need to optimize continued prep use. Um, Persistence on PrEP is, is the thing that most clearly is correlated to actual uh, benefit to the patient. Um, one of the things that's under discussion is to what extent should we emphasize the benefits of being on PrEP versus the risks of not being on PrEP. Um, risk discussions cause a fair amount of anxiety in patients, but on the other hand, most people who are taking PrEP are taking it because they have some concern about acquiring HIV infection. Um, we need to offer active follow-up for missed visits. This will be especially important for cabotegravir. And we need to anticipate that many patients will stop and restart their PrEP. Um, some of those will also change from one PrEP method to another. And the clinician needs to be prepared to support them, give advice about how to do those changes safely as well as insist with insurance and financial coverage issues. So in this, um, in this study, for example, they, you can see some of the things that we've been talked about. So um, you can see that not all the patients who were referred for PrEP actually ended up in care or prescribed PrEP uh, or picked up their prescriptions. But of those who did, only a half stayed in care for the year of follow-up that was um, being done. And there was a 12-month HIV incidence of 1.3% among all these patients. Uh, all but one of these patients uh, were patients who uh, had, had stopped taking their PrEP in terms of picking up their prescriptions. Next slide. It's another way of looking at these issues uh, in some administrative data, which you can see on the left is uh, rates of discontinuation of PrEP uh, over a period of time. And you can see that um, both for the first time stopping and for the final time stopping, uh, there, there were fairly uh, high rates of discontinuation. Uh, in a study in Atlanta, you can see what it looks like where people were uh, 131 people started, 40 were fully persistent, 91 stopped. But of those who stopped, many then restarted, stopped again, restarted again. Um, so this, this is a common behavior among PrEP patients. Next slide. So it's interesting to try to figure out, well, why are patients who are 
and not using PrEP who have been offered it. Uh, in one study uh, in an Ottawa STD clinic, uh, you can see that nearly half of them said, well, I don't, I don't have enough risk. Um, and even though they had done a risk assessment and they were explained some of the risk factors that they had reported, they felt that their current risk level was not typical of how they usually behaved. And so they were, they were not at risk. Another quarter were not interested or wanted to think about it. Um, or maybe they felt like it was not something they wanted to discuss at this visit, but might want to discuss at another visit. When you asked about discontinuing PrEP in, an, in that Atlanta PrEP clinic study that I showed the flow diagram for, 31% said they weren't currently at risk, 13% said they had problems attending the appointments, and then smaller groups had, had other um, reported reasons for discontinuing. Next slide. This is a look at switching regimens in a cohort of MSM in Amsterdam. And you can see that switches from event-driven to daily prep um, happen fairly frequently, or, or back uh, from daily prep to, to event-driven happen fairly frequently. But the switches were more commonly from daily, uh, from event-driven to daily prep. Next slide. So, Here's the next question. The most urgent question I have about introducing cabotegravir injections for PrEP into my practice are, okay, next slide. Ha, this is very interesting. Because it's new, um, providers are telling us at CDC that they have lots of questions about how to make this work for PrEP patients. And I think those of you in the audience who have been trying to implement Cabinuva for uh, treatment will be familiar with some of these issues um, that are coming up uh, for PrEP. And it's hopeful that with some of the lessons we've learned from Cavanuva will be helpful uh, in learning how to scale up and roll out uh, aptitude for, for PrEP. Next slide. So this is an example. This is a, a, a study of the introduction of Cavanuva um, that I think we can learn some lessons for PrEP about. Um, and what you can see in this study is that um, it's interesting that the perceived barriers to implementation um, among participants and healthcare staff at month 12 of the study, the providers had more perceived barriers, perceived more barriers for their patients than patients perceived for themselves, um, which, is, which is a really interesting uh, perspective. Um, the most common thing that the patients uh, thought was a concern was the injection site uh, pain or soreness. Um, whereas, um, you know, whereas things like patient transportation were rarely reported by patients, but were often reported by providers. Um, 
the participants said that the things they found extremely helpful were verbal in, in discussion of uh, about PrEP, information and resources that they were given to take away, reminder phone calls about their visits, and reminder text messages. Next slide. It's also interesting to note that at baseline, the most frequent reported concerns among healthcare staff about their own uh, capacity to deliver PrEP was the ability to keep the monthly visit for patients to keep monthly visits and attain transportation and the ability of the staff to identify those missed visits in a timely manner. But what's interesting is that uh, looking over time, almost all of the perceived barriers by the providers decreased over time, uh, the exception being the patient injection and soreness issue. Um, so this suggests that as people become, as providers become more comfortable providing uh, Cabinuva, that they had fewer and fewer of these concerns. We hope that the same thing will be true for um, aptitude for PrEP. Next slide. So while people are initiating and following up PrEP patients, one of the things we have to do is optimize the detection of incident HIV infection. And in the new treatment guidelines, this has resulted in the presentation of two different algorithms to determine HIV status. So the first is starting and restarting PrEP for persons with no recent antiretroviral use. Um, and the second is restarting or continuing PrEP for patients who did have recent antiretroviral use. And that algorithm includes using qualitative preferred uh, HIV RNA, uh, RNA assays or quantitative if qualitative are not available. Next slide. The reason for that is, is data from several studies about the performance of some of the commonly used tests um, in patients who are taking PrEP. So this is a study from Thailand where they were looking at antigen antibody test um, responses and other uh, kinds of earlier generations of, of test responses. Uh, during patients who acquired acute infection while on PrEP. Um, and what you can see is that in the red blocks that the, the fourth generation antigen antibody tests really did a very poor job at detecting um, these infections. Next slide. In the cabotegravir study um, where they... Uh, People had uh, instrumented antigen antibody test at the site uh, at every visit, but they also had blood drawn that was sent to, um, to the HPTN core lab and stored over time. And so at a visit where someone was identified as H incident HIV infection at the sites, they were then able to go back to the stored specimens and step backwards in time and see what was the earliest time in which they could detect an HIV infection. And if you look at the incident infections on CAB, um, there was a delay in, um, in detection uh, that could be quite long, that could be up to six months. Um, I think on average, it was around 90 days. 
And in the, in the FTDF arm, there was a similar delay, but it was on average only about 30 days. So in both cases, the presence of, of um, effective antiretrovirals is impacting the ability to detect um, incident infections using antigen antibody tests. And for that reason, we have added both antigen antibody testing and qualitative RNA because qualitative RNA was the most sensitive test uh, in this in the HPTN 083 study. Next slide. Um, I want to just put here uh, some of the resources for clinicians, and you can look at most of these, uh, you know, when you look at the slides after this presentation. But I want to point out that um, CDC is encouraging the use of the PrEP line uh, for patient for clinicians who have questions about uh, how, who to give PrEP to, how to give PrEP, um, what tests are appropriate um, for people who are taking PrEP or switching between different methods of PrEP. And in addition, we've made an arrangement with the PrEP line so that clinicians can access <clears throat> advanced diagnostics for PrEP patients who have ambiguous test results or who seem to have acquired HIV while being prescribed PrEP. Next slide. Um, I was asked to talk a little bit about why all this matters. What's the impact of PrEP? Um, and so I wanna first talk about the impact on individuals of PrEP. And in this study in Kaiser Permanente, San Francisco, they were able to show that um, those patients who were linked to PrEP, but not prescribed it, those who were prescribed it and did not take it, and those who stopped and did not start it, restart it, had very high rates of uh, incident HIV infections compared to those who stopped and then restarted that had a much reduced rate of incident infections. And there were no incident infections among those who were persistent on PrEP. Next slide. At the population level, there are a number of studies um, showing us the impact. Um, uh, so on the left, you can see uh, the new cases in San Francisco. Um, and you can see that it, earlier, before FDA approval of PrEP, there was a decline in the number of new diagnoses that was likely related to the institution of rapid start antiretroviral therapy. Um, in San Francisco, but that that decline was, was greatly accelerated in the area after PrEP, in the era after PrEP was uh, provided. And you can see that right now they have almost 71% um, coverage of PrEP um, in their populations at highest risk. Um, on the right, what you can see is how that plays out across different race ethnicities in San Francisco. And you can see that um, there is some decline among African-American men, although there seems to have been a rebound, but that most of the decline was accounted for by a steep decline among white men in San Francisco. Next slide. So if we are to optimize PrEP, 
to achieve maximal impact on new HIV diagnoses. Um, we have to make use of the many choices that we have, despite the fact that um, they're adding complexity. Um, and we first have to optimize from the perspective of the patient and provide whatever option offers the best available prevention care for a given patient. And that requires uh, a discussion and some shared decision-making. We then need to optimize for the provider and the healthcare site. So we need to be able to um, help clinics and providers learn how to optimize workflow to reduce the burden of these um, PrEP programs for the staff. Next slide. So I wanna thank you for the opportunity to talk to you today and I'm looking forward to your questions. Great, thank you very much. It's a great review. We got, as you can imagine, a number of questions. We'll get through them. Um, so one of the questions, uh, just and if you could just briefly overview the comparison of oral prep versus the injectable, and uh, we've now seen it in 083 and 084, and you, you've described it, but just um, the overall efficacy, comparative e efficacy, and uh, what you'd recommend. Um, so daily oral prep with Truvada, which was what was studied in 083, uh, is more than 90% effective if you take it regularly. Um, what they found in the trial was that many patients did not take it regularly so that the efficacy was less. It was in the range of 75%. Um, and because cabotegravir is long acting, you, you take your injection, you're covered over a long period of time with that drug. So it had very much higher efficacy. Um, so I think if you have fully adherent oral prep, it has a very similar efficacy to cabotegravir. The difference is in the adherence. Yeah. It's the old adage, medicines don't work unless they're taken. Right. Uh, so do you recommend a lead-in before cabotegravir or go uh, directly to injection? Uh, our guidelines recommend direct to injection with an mm -hmm. option for oral lead-in. If you have a patient who's like really concerned about side effects and really not sure that he wants to start with, you know, a long, long acting drug, um, but really for almost all patients, it's better to go to direct to inject. Right. So one commentary here about funding for uninsured and underinsured uh, individuals is still a significant barrier in where do you see the funding coming from in the future? I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you were all working on it. I think yeah. um, for oral prep, we have benefited from the USPSTF um, rec um, recommendation and grade. And uh, they are currently reviewing cabotegravir. And so it may be in a year or two that we'll have also that benefit, but that's for the insured persons. That's for commercially insured and some publicly insured patients. Um, both, all the drug companies um, provide uh, some form of medication assistance for uninsured persons, uh, including for cabotegravir. 
And for oral PrEP, we have the Ready Set PrEP program, which provides uh, for free drug for uninsured persons. Um, while the drug cost is the, is the bulk of the cost of PrEP, there's also the laboratory cost and the, um, and the clinical visit costs, and those are more problematic. And I think if people are going to uh, FQHCs or other clinics that have sliding fee scales, that can be helpful. But I think it's unfortunate that we live in a country that has a very patchwork system of how it covers healthcare. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think that's a nice uh, segue to another question, and that's uh, the audience you're speaking to now are, are majority are pretty much involved in HIV care clinics. So they've got a full panel of, of people who are infected and in Ryan White clinics and that type of thing. And a lot of these clinics and, and, and practices don't have niche space to really incorporate PrEP in a big way. And it's, it's not a primary care setting where people at risk might be coming in who are uninfected. Your case gave a good example of how a partner would be evaluated. That's more of an exception. So it feels like an answer to the last question you alluded to the FQHCs and that type of thing. Um, how can we, how do you think we can get better penetration into primary care uh, where folks are, who are more likely to be at higher risk, we can implement uh, PrEP in those settings? Well, CDC and HRSA are working very hard to make that happen. Um, and I think there's a number of things that we're trying to do, both in terms of reaching out to primary care associations, to the American Academy of Family Medicine, to, um, to general internists, to a whole variety of primary care, OBGYNs, pediatricians, a whole cadre of primary care providers who need to become more familiar with, with PrEP. I think um, there's a lot of effort going into um, public health detailing um, to, to help those providers believe that this is something they can and should be doing. Um, but I think that infectious disease docs and HIV docs can be very helpful because I know that there have been, there was one study we did with community health centers where often the ID doc kind of didn't want to let go of PrEP, didn't want to like turn it over to the primary care staff, uh, uh, insisted on seeing all the patients in addition to the primary care provider. And I think that the ID docs are more familiar with the drugs and are more familiar with the HIV issues and the testing issues. And they can play an important role in, in supporting their primary care colleagues and making it clear to them that this is not complicated, that this is no. simple. And that if they do feel like they get into trouble that they can call them and get some advice about some unusual test result or some unusual complaint of a patient. Um, so I think the ID community can be very helpful in partnering with their primary care colleagues. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, Kristen Wagner follows up with our last comment about if we're in a Ryan White funded program, um, by law, we're not really allowed to access um, medication or pay for costs associated with those directly at risk for PrEP. Um, is there any suggestion you have into ways to get financial support through a Ryan White clinic, or is that just kind of, uh, we have to come up with other means? 
You have to come with other means, as I understand it, from Laura yeah. Cheever and others, that the legislation that establishes Ryan White Care is very specific that it's to provide services to positive persons. Um, the one exception is that you are allowed to test negative persons. And yeah. so in, the, in, the, in doing that, identifying patients who may need PrEP and referring them to PrEP providers in your community can be very important part of what you do in a Ryan White clinic even. Yeah, it's interesting to me as I'm looking through these questions that there's not much question about who's at risk and what we need to do or try to do about folks. It's mostly about policy and that type of thing. And similarly with this new recommendation for getting HIV RNA, as a means of following folks while they're on PrEP. Do you anticipate a problem with any of the payers uh, balking or pushing back at, at ordering that test? There will be some problem. We're not sure how much and which kinds of payers quite yet. I think um, we've been interested to hear from a lot of our colleagues that they were already doing this for whatever reason. Um, that they were doing PCR testing before they started people on PrEP just as a routine practice, and they were getting it covered by insurance. So I think, um, I think we're just kind of watching and waiting to see, you know, how that works. I think having CDC make the guidelines specific about that is helpful. I think having the FDA package insert have that as a black box warning uh, in their package insert increases the likelihood that the um, insurers are going to cover it. And the last question real quickly is I'm combining a couple, but if you start somebody on uh, an injectable, in this case, uh, cabotegravir, um, and you're concerned about follow-up, if they miss their follow-up visit, uh, the issue about the pharmacologic tail that might be there and um, does that affect your judgment about when and how to start prep for folks? When and how to start cabotegravir prep? Yeah. Um, again, I think this is so new that we don't have a lot of experience yeah. with it yet. We don't really know what patients we should be cautious with. Yeah. And so I think at this point, it's really a matter of having a discussion with the patient, making sure that they understand what the stakes are. And particularly that they understand the tail issue, that this is not something they can just stop and, and ignore. Um, and then making a decision about what seems appropriate for that patient. Yeah, that's a very straightforward and, and surely honest answer. I appreciate that. We're going to learn as keep learning as we go. We've learned a lot already. If we just turn the clock back to 2010 or so when we, this all started pushing forward, it's it's been pretty remarkable. The effectiveness, number one, um, as you showed from the San Francisco data, but also the options that we now have for treatment as well as those that are being developed for the future. Thanks again for not just the lecture, but for all that you've done to promote this uh, through the years. Uh, we look forward to continuing to engage with you uh, in the years to come. Thanks, Mike. Okay. All right. So that was wonderful.